0: brings us to a transition here to our- yeah, i
1: mean if you've stuck with us this long i appreciate you listening and the good news is we're not done yet
2: we are not we're- done yet
1: <laughs> yes we still, we still have some miss of you guys uh, some additional great content as we are getting to the home stretch of our conversation that's been taking place over the last several months on the book not done yet and we are talking about two chapters, say 11 and 12, we're almost to the end of the book. And as, as we're wrapping up these conversations, but the, the two chapters, 11 re, revisioning evangelism inside the church box. And then chapter 12 is balancing Orthodox distinction and cultural engagement.
0: Wow. It's a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, we here, only have one more chapter
0: after this. Like it, I yeah. feel
1: this has been a journey. This has been a year. A lot has happened. Uh, in young adult ministry, in our own lives, as we've been reading through this book. And even as I was uh, earlier today, refreshing myself on some of the chapters, it hitting differently uh, than the first time, like than the first time that I read it or like, or hitting the same way, but I forgot what, uh, how it hit just kind of as the world continues to, to change at a faster clip. But uh, Mm -hmm. starting with chapter 11, talking about evangelism outside the box, thinking outside the box, uh, inside the box what were you guys' thoughts from this chapter
2: you know something I something I was thinking as I was reading this chapter is you know I'm I'm at a church with you know just in our one little small group of of college age young adults where roughly 15 to 20 show up for that on a Sunday morning um, which is awesome um, I'd say there's a hundred young adults, ages 18 to 29. There's about 100 that come to one of our services and hang out, church of about 14, 1,500, something like that. Um, I'm just curious now, as I read this, I'm wondering, I think I always assumed that the young adults that are hanging out already know Christ. They're already following Christ. They've made that kind of decision. They would identify as Christians and believers. I'm not sure why I've just assumed that, because as I read this chapter, I, it just made me think like, wow, what percentage of those 15 to 20, you know, students who are with us on a Sunday morning, I wonder what percentage of those have actually, you know, would identify themselves as Christ followers, so to speak. And I bet it's, there's more than I would think that have not really made that decision. And therefore, most perhaps half or more of the young adults that are somehow connected. They just come to a service and leave or whatever. Um, This chapter just opened my eyes to think that um, there's probably a lot of young adults who are part of our ministries and communities and churches that we assume have a relationship with Christ, and maybe they don't. Um, And that's cool in that, you know, back in, in my day of being a young adult, I think if you were not a Christ follower, you just wouldn't go to church. Yeah. There would be no reason or whatever, um, unless you were after a, a romantic interest perhaps, but, um, but things have definitely changed where now it's, it's interesting that there, there probably are a lot of young adults, college age, 18, 29, whatever, who either just really need want the community or they're just exploring they're just curious or they've grown up in the church and they've you know whatever we've assumed so anyway it just really made me ask that question in a serious sort of way that I really haven't um so in some ways that just makes me think interesting that the potential conversations I should be having with some of the young adults that are currently a part of our community um but then also how do you leverage that it's just a And it's not like this is a brand new thought. I mean, the whole believing before or belonging before believing, that phrase has been bouncing around for a little while now in the church and in certain circles. Um, But then for her to kind of add to it, believing or behave, belonging before you believe or behave. Um, So that part too, like, um, that's where it gets, it gets tricky for some, like, as far as the the wrist stuff she talks about later like you you end up with young adults definitely not believing and not necessarily behaving like christians just yet and probably some people assume they're christians because they're at church um so then i don't know anyway this chapter it was good it it made me rethink um some things about evangelism about how i think about who's the young adults that are coming to church i need to reevaluate where i think they are at spiritually And again, this goes back to something we keep talking about is, is, Hey, spend time with young adults, talk to young adults, get to know young adults. (laughs) Don't just read books about young adults or sometimes like me, sit back and pontificate and think that, you know, understand young adults just by observing them or whatever, but we need to have conversations or relationships.
1: Yeah. But you Kenny
2: or Jer, anybody,
1: I was going to transition it to Kenny. So that's okay. Yeah. Well, um, Recent conversations with
0: with young adults in our church has reminded me how important it is to not, I mean, not judge people, but also not assume that they are necessarily where you think that they might be on their faith continuum. It's It might be easy to assume from the outside that someone's really close with God, um, but they're not, and vice versa. That somebody's really far away or they're not engaged at all, but they actually have a really intimate relationship with Christ and are doing stuff that would just blow your mind, you know, in the kingdom. Um, and, and also how important it is to have intergenerational that aren't set up and intentional necessarily a, pro, pro, a programmatic. They sure can be. But just when older folks in a church take interest in, in a young adult, in young adults, and just invest in them, love on them while they're going to college, you know, in the different seasons of their life and journey um, just how can I be fostering those things? Cause I've seen that recently, recently. Um, I've seen the kaleidoscope of that, of that. And I've seen that pay off and I've seen people that you thought were doing pretty good and they just were sucking eggs. Um, and, and when you're not doing great, it's really easy to isolate yourself mm-hmm. and to guilt and shame spiral mm-hmm. and, Just to not like, you feel like you're going to hurt other people because if you, if they really knew what was going on in your life, I don't know, you don't know if they could handle it, you know? And we have young adults in all of our myths that are at, at some place, you know, at these different stages of the journey. So to keep extending the invitations to commitment of faith, to keep asking how people are doing you know, in their relationship with Christ, not are they going to church or not, but, you know, that's important, but where are they at in the relationship? I think those things are all important. So the important chapter to me, and I'll just wrap up with, um, if you like picture books, this is a fantastic chapter. There's great use of color gradients in, in different graphs um, that are quite engaging. And especially when it comes to the risk that Chris talked about and churches taking risks and emerging adults taking risks and where that overlaps and the, both of those things are important. And, and that's page 81, 181 and 182. And then the the, the the teeter-totter one. It's like a playground of graphs and pictorial illustrations of what they're talking about in the chapter. And I just really appreciated it, both from a, a depth and surface level. Jeremy.
2: Yeah, they used a little more ink in this chapter for sure.
1: They did, they, they, they saved wow. it to the last here. I think one of the main things for me is you highlighted it, Chris, on page 178. She says this, that yet I observe a, uh, I observed a nuance. Unchurched people are following a pattern that involves more than belonging before believing they are in many ways, belonging and behaving before believing that it's not just coming and being a part, but that invitation to participate and to be a part in the life of small groups, life groups, uh, volunteering, leading and things. And it it led me on a few tangents uh, as I thought about it that I'll I'll tangent on right now. Um, The the two this, uh, one, I I think it put into words for me helpful thinking about some of the young adults in my local church context who are struggling, who who have verbalized uh, struggling in terms of the belonging. People who've grown up in the church who state beliefs in the right things. And I would say, believe the right, like believe in Jesus. Uh, but then in thinking about them, like, uh, yeah, I, they are struggling to belong, which is not a surprising thing, but there's a few in particular that I'm yeah, the, the behaving part, like they state what they believe about Jesus. um, but we haven't gotten them involved in the life of the church, um, mm-hmm. in, in the practices of what it means to be a part of the community of faith. Um, and that could be on a person individually. There's a lot of responsibility in terms of the church, in terms of providing those opportunities in terms of inculcating and developing that in the life of our discipleship as a church. It reminds me of the book, Alan Hirsch or not Alan Hirsch, a patient ferment of the early church. Sorry. Um, patient ferment of the early church by Alan Crider and uh, talks about how um, that for the early church there between Jesus's ascension and Constantine coming into power those couple hundred years that the marker was a a radical dependency on the work of the Holy Spirit uh, so there was patience uh, in what God was doing, but that people were known not just by what they stated that they believed, but by the practices that they had. And that uh, for a segment of the early church, that it took a long time before you were allowed to be a part of the full experience of Christianity. Uh, because in order to be baptized, there was uh, classes that you would go to, there was, you would have a mentor assigned to you. Uh, part of this, making sure that uh, as they were being persecuted, that there was some um, hoops to jump through to keep the community safe from government persecution, but then also just that people truly were bought in so uh, the example that that Carter uses in his book is that you uh, that someone would be interested in you acting different than the than the rest of the neighborhood and ask you about it, and as they began to find out about your faith in this jesus this uh one God that came out of uh, the Hebrew scriptures that then they would begin that you would begin a relationship with them, that you would take them then to your pastor and you could officially, if they wanted become like their mentor and journey with them. So that over a couple of years or months or years of going to uh, like educational class, but it was like learning that the habits of and the practices uh, that in some tr- it wasn't until after you went through that and been baptized that you would then, hear all of the sermon on Sunday morning like up until that po- until you were a part of that if you came together for the the tr- weekly church gathering you could be there up until uh the sermon the full sermon and communion and you were dismissed before then mm. and that you weren't like it was not that b- what you believed was an important but it was like it doesn't like you're going to ruin this for everybody if you start naming yourself as a Christian and you don't actually act like one um and the example in the book is definitely like to the extreme of what a lot of what we see in culture today, but it like helps is, is a helpful reminder of what it is uh, that how are we marked what how are we I heard someone talking about this in a sermon recently. They're like, yeah, you know, the third commandment don't take God's name in vain and they're like it's a deficient understanding to think of that just in terms of like cursing language, but like is your life speaking well or speaking ill of Jesus, uh, and how you're, and how you're acting. Um, the other thought actually it was Alan Hirsch. Uh, that, that I was thinking about in this chapter was he, in a, a message that he spoke at, I think at a verge conference, he talks about disciples, the disciples of Jesus. He's like, at what point in those like three years, did they become Christians Were they saved and converted? like he's like, you couldn't like pin, like pinpoint, like they made a bunch of mistakes. You had Pete, like Peter. So it probably wasn't until like the crucifixion and the resurrection, but they still messed up stuff. Like he's like, you can't really like pinpoint. Like this is where they went from being an unsaved believer to a saved believer. And he's like, maybe that's kind of the po- like point that our journey with Jesus is not like this. There are singular events, but that is not the totality of uh, the Christian journey and that it is a journey and so it's a helpful reminder in this chapter to be reminded that just because somebody is showing up consistently, uh, that is a good thing. And it doesn't mean that, like, that they're necessarily a proclaimed believer in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that they're not on the journey. Um, and so how do we continue to be hospitable and receptive communities uh, for people, young adults especially, that are on different, uh, different points in that journey of faith?
2: Hospitable, hospitable. I like that. Um, She mentions on page 176, one of my favorite books on evangelism, The Celtic Way by George Hunter. Um, And this is hard to just summarize. So let me read a little bit. Um, Hunter describes monastic communities that enveloped pre-Christian Celts into imaginative, hospitable, and relevant communities of Christ followers, Experience a keen sense of belonging to the community. He suggests that postmodern people need similar experiences with hospitable Christians who welcome unbelievers. And I think um, the rest of that is good too. I could keep reading, but I'll stop there. Um, and sometimes because I'm kind of the coffee guy too, sometimes people think I I reduce hospitality to coffee and donuts or something like that. But I think one of the reasons I take coffee so seriously is because there is a sense of radical biblical hospitality that we are called to treat those who are not kin. They're not family. They're not yet, you know what they could be. We treat them as family. We treat them as what they could be, Um, you know, in the same way that Jesus uh, or that God has extended grace and community and we were strangers and aliens, even enemies with God, and yet he treats us as if, you know, we're sons and daughters uh, kind of thing. So I just think that kind of hospitality is so critical um, that we, um, you know, that word, if you break it down and look at the history of it, it's, it's kind of this word that really means to aggressively love strangers um, mm. and, and I think we need, we need more of that kind of hospitality in our churches, um, and not just coffee at our churches. We need some aggressive stranger loving hospitality going on. It was also interesting to me, Jeremy, you brought, you talked about the, the behaving piece or the believing that you couldn't, it didn't matter what you believe sermon wise, you you don't need to deal with a sermon yet until you've sort of incorporated some of the practices and the behaviors that um and it's just so opposite now where we think oh as long as somebody believes the right things um that's more important than the way sort of it gets lived out and we love one another so you can believe the right thing and then treat somebody like crap because they don't believe what you believe or whatever it's just such a foreign um and again i hate to be all random and spastic here but I just started this book by James, uh, Jamie Smith, who's a kind of a Christian philosopher, professor, dude, you are what you love. And he talks about, he, he's, he, he does such a great job in the first chapter of explaining why humans are not just thinking things. We're not brains on a stick, but we are what we love and we are like what we desire, what we love, what we want ultimately is so important and that shapes us more than what we think or what we believe um so anyway there's so much good stuff here before that we kind of touch us on
0: before we shift to chapter 12 and close it out today guys um uh Jeremy, i'm gonna go back and listen to the podcast as is my custom when i'm preparing it to share because after you said the word inculcate which is <laughs> such a rare verbiage gem uh i really didn't you hear, don't
2: hear that much in your quotidian no. life
0: yeah i'm gonna look that up too and <laughs> it's great and still an attitude idea or habit by persistent instruction um it was really good word usage and i wanted to say about this book as well i'm just gonna have to go back little, i don't have anything else to say because that's the only thing I, I got stuck on um i tried i think that The author's done a really good job, and not done yet with how they wrap up each chapter. A chapter rewind, so I could really just read that part and not read the book. But it's beneficial to read the book, and then starting the chapter rewind, starting the conversation, and then action steps. So, like, so it's really laid out. If you're reading this with other people or on your own, you've got some handles on like where to go next with the idea that that you're grappling with um, in the chapter here. But what about chapter twelve, balancing orthodox distinction and culture? engagement
1: and i i think chris kind of like what you were just saying at the end there about talking about chapter 11 really in my mind sums up chapter 12 in terms of talking about hospitality because the whole point of this chapter 12 is that you need to be distinctive in, in beliefs and practices. So, or like not advocating for throwing away all of historic Christianity, but also still engaging uh, culture. And so, she provides one of her other helpful charts in this chapter saying, like, you could be really culturally engaged, but if you have no Christian distinctiveness, then you're being shaped by the culture instead of the other way around. Mm. Uh, And on the flip side, then you could have this really like uh, distinctiveness, but become so secluded by not being engaged in culture and saying that uh, if you were to put those two things on like an XY graph and create, you know, like a box with four squares, that um, the top right one of those, it would be being distinctive in your Christian faith, but then also being engaged. And in my mind, that's where the radical stranger loving Christian hospitality that Chris was just talking about. Like that's one of the best ways to fully embody that uh, distinctive Like if we are being uh, true to the Christian faith, uh, true to what Jesus exemplified for us in his life, death, resurrection and ascension, which was engaging the world where it's at and saying, I don't want you to just stay where you're at. Um, And there's some good news in this. Uh, that uh, like that's, that's Christian hospitality uh, through declaration and and demonstration. So I I feel like uh, that idea of hospitality really kind of sums up for me, a lot of really good points in the chapter, but kind of goes back to Christian hospitality.
2: I feel like, um, you know, and she points out something about kind of being engaged, basically walking this, tightrope with emerging adults as far as these are the things that make us distinctively christian but we also want to build bridges to the culture we're not against culture um mm. i think of andy crouch's book and his different postures towards culture that we can we should critique culture but we shouldn't just automatically condemn all culture and sometimes that's what the what the church does. Um, So we need to be bridge builders, not, uh, she didn't say this, but I'm thinking bridge burners. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes Christians want to burn the connections, um, you know, between the church and culture. But I think we have to, especially to reach emerging adults, I just think um, we can't always lead, you know, step with, you know, sometimes we talk about leading with this foot or leading with this belief or leading with, hey, be sure you know, this is our stance on human sexuality, or hey, be sure you know that we don't approve of social drinking, or hey, like, to lead with some of those things is, is just not helpful. And honestly, those should not be things that, that make us distinctively Christian. And for some denominations or Christian, you know, whatever churches, sometimes those things are the distinctives, um, unfortunately. So, I don't know, I still think with emerging adults, we really have to keep in mind, You know, I think what C.S. Lewis called sort of the primary and tertiary or the, the top shelf and the bottom shelf issues of, these are the non-negotiables. This is the distinctively Christian stuff. Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus is Lord, God, Trinity, um, grace, salvation by faith alone. Uh, in Christ, then there's some bottom shelf issues, like, um, you know, some of the other things that denominations will often, you know, and those kind of things, I think, you know, if we focus and lead with those kinds of things, I just think college students, young adults are just like, uh, okay, whatever. But I also love that she emphasized this idea of having a porous kind of environment, where we welcome young adults to come in and out. It's okay to be exploring and trying to figure things out. And we want you to know as a church, we'll be here for you. We want to walk with you through this. We're not making you sign a document like you believe all these things before you can hang out with us. So,
0: Don't at me. Oh, but all she addresses at the front end here some issues that fundamental Christianity has had with completely withdrawing or a fundamental perspective at the very least, even if it's not like full-on fundamental, like culturally mm-hmm. Christianity, yeah, yeah full of fundamentalism um, of withdrawal from culture instead of engagement with. And I, guys, we, we can talk about this later. We need to take this part out now that I'm about to say if you want to, but I'm almost wondering if next time we need to come back to this chapter, we can decide if we want to do that or not. But I was I was very engaged by the conversation that that she had with pastors about their approach towards LGBTQ, and um, it's not something we talked a, a, about, we've maybe mentioned but not really talked about a lot. And I'm not trying to get us to right now, but that's in here, and how those pastors navigate that and their conversations with young adults. Um, but here's the quote that kind of wraps what i've highlighted from the chapter up and this is on page 199 pastors of churches reaching emerging adults combine high emotional intelligence on their part with the strength of their orthodox convictions you know you can uh, you can disagree with someone or maybe you have someone's living um, but it doesn't mean that you don't uh, care and and love them and people know the difference and people often Will respect the difference. I respect other people when they go. I don't, I don't agree with you, but I, but I love you. And you know, you're my brother, Um, or you're my sister. They might be my sister. I won't be their sister. But high emotional intelligence and the strength of their orthodox convictions. I think that's really important. Conversation that happens and that she highlights a few different conversations with pastors uh, in this chapter. With that, so we can decide if we want to next time come back around with chapter 13 and kind of polish off 12 before we wrap up the book and then uh figure out what we're going to do next together what we're going to journey through next together so good getting into it with you i've missed this with you guys same ready to take it out good stuff until next time